0: If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store. Plus, they have exclusive member deals as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com slash and get our special deal. Butcher Box is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at butcherbox.com/lisk l i s k and use code lisk to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order.
1: Welcome to another bonus episode of the Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast. Whereas you've probably noticed that official season two episodes have unfortunately come to a close, we will continue producing occasional LISC-related bonus content featuring case updates, topical tangents, and even some familiar voices, like that of today's guest, our Long Island area homicide detective, who has been an indispensable resource while investigating the list case and other cold cases that are currently on the MOPAC audio docket. He recently sat down with me on a return trip from Tennessee, where he talked about what it actually takes for law enforcement to process DNA, as well as best practices for working with web sleuths, and ways he imagines the List case might one day be solved. So, uh, what's up, dude? Like, you're in, Ten- you're in Tennessee. Uh, tell, yeah, me, um, tell me about so that. We just
2: left, just left Knoxville. Um, we went to, my partner Mike and I, we went to the body farm which I, we, we spoke about the other day. Um, so we are there for a week, and now we have to drive back to Nashville for our flight.
1: Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Tell me, uh, are there any real updates you can give me? Any sort of insight that maybe the public doesn't know?
2: I know the police commissioner in Long Island just uh, just changed over. So I would think that maybe uh, there's new fresh eyes on the case, but as far as investigative uh, lead, not really sure. We did provide them with some information, which was spoken about in season two of LISC with the person of interest. Um, That information is now in the hands of investigators working the case. But as far as any insight I might have as to what's going on, I'm not really sure. Uh, I would assume that they're waiting on genealogy, still interviewing, you know, family members, uh, working off tips uh, received uh, via their website or from phone calls. Um, Other than that, I'm, I'm not really you know, kind of in in a loop on the case.
1: Yeah, sure. And that makes sense. You're not an SCPD cop or even a Nassau County cop.
2: What I can tell you is that at least genealogy, um, it takes a while. So by the time, you know, you have to get reference samples, you have to send those reference samples down to a different state, you know, typically Virginia or Florida uh, or Texas. And those labs are swamped right now with cases. So law enforcement departments are paying to expedite this stuff, but it still takes weeks, if not months to get results.
1: Could you tell me about that process a little bit and like how much it costs and what this backlog looks like? Because as we talked about, it just sort of became legal to use genetic genealogy. So they have a backlog of DNA that they need to test. Can you talk about how expensive that is, what it looks like, you know, how much time it goes into all of this?
2: Yeah, uh, especially for this case. So what New York would do is firstly they'd want to identify the uh, unidentified remains. So I believe there's still a couple uh, bodies that are still un- unaccounted for. Um, and then once they eventually identify those people, they could, you know, basically have fresh leads to go off of. You take the reference sample, which is a DNA sample, typically a little card containing like a little spot of blood, which was taken during an autopsy. If there is not blood available, if it's uh, pretty much a skeletal remains, they'll actually extract DNA from the bones. They'll send that either drive it down or send it via like FedEx overnight to whatever lab they choose. Like i mentioned before, there's a lab in Virginia, there's a lab in uh, Texas, there's a lab in Florida at least that I know about. I'm sure there's more. Uh cost-wise, you're looking at anywhere between 3 and $10,000 I would say. Depending on how many samples uh you're actually sending down. That is that's like a starting point. So First, they have to actually process the DNA. They have to come up with a genetic profile. Once a genetic f- profile is uh, then created, then uh, typically that profile gets sent to a different lab, a lab that has a contract with the genealogy companies. So when you use genealogy, something like an Ancestry.com, 23andMe, those companies don't specifically share the DNA with law enforcement. They use a company called GenMatch, which matches your DNA with other people around uh, the country. So, for instance, if I did Ancestry.com, if I agreed to give my sample and to all the, you know, the fine print, when I get my results back, you'll actually see like people I'm related to, first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and that's that's what GenMatch does. It just everything just takes time. So once a profile is created, whether it be blood or or from bones, it then gets transferred to another lab uh, that has a contract with GenMatch, and then kind of go from there and try to come up with some type of first cousin relative, if not a second cousin relative of that DNA profile. You know, in totality, uh, you're looking at anywhere between three to six months at a minimum.
1: And then who pays for that? Do taxpayers pay for that? Because I would imagine there's like hundreds of samples and backlog. And if they're at least, you know, let's say 10K a pop, if not more, you know, that's a lot of money.
2: Absolutely. Different var- different resources. Uh, sometimes government grants. Um, I know, like for instance, my my office right now we're we're working on a government grant for cold case uh, that we're hoping to to get, which will provide a lot of funds to test, basically just for DNA testing on cold cases. Whether it be grants, whether it be uh, budgetary, some departments have have money to spend, but it definitely can get costly, especially when you're you're sending a lot of evidence, you're sending a lot of DNA reference samples. For instance, we. We just sent the case down to a private lab right now. I can't really discuss the details of the case, but it's getting costly because once we were able to successfully get DNA, now we have to compare that DNA to several different suspects. And every time you compare it to a different suspect, it incurs new costs. So uh, it's definitely getting expensive.
1: Yeah, people get get really um, confused around topics of DNA, and it's just very helpful to have you know, a law enforcement source like yourself to clarify all of that. Let's quickly pivot to outside, you know, sources like people who submit tips and how someone in law enforcement like yourself relates to these tips. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. um, So a lot of leads pretty much from the start, you can vet them out pretty quickly. If there's something of of substance, such as the the POI file, uh, which is over 200 pages, that alone kind of caught my eye. The fact that somebody put that much time and effort into basically a presentation on somebody they thought might be involved in the LISC case, now, there's a good chance that that person, the POI, has already been vetted out. It, it's definitely possible. Um, I would think so. But there's also that chance that you know the file got pushed to the side and may never be looked at again. A case like LISC, is pretty. Uh, it's a pretty high-profile case, especially on the East Coast. Every you know, few few months, few years. Uh, you, Consistently seeing articles come out about the case, which pretty much generates more tips. A lot of the tips, at least from cases I've worked, are just so far out there that, you know, it's it's not even worth putting effort into. But they're, you know, typically you might get some you might get lucky, you might get some good leads to run down. And that's what I would think that the FBI is doing right now and has been doing for the past almost twelve years.
1: So can you talk about what your relationship is to for lack of a better term, web sleuths or on online researchers, like how has that helped you? And how has being a homicide detective sort of changed in terms of investigation techniques, like over the past 20 years or so? Well,
2: as far as uh, your first part of the question about uh, web sleuthing and, and things like that, um, I mean, we're always open. Most people I work with are, are open to, to hearing the general public. Um, if somebody has an idea or somebody has uh, a tip, we're always willing to... To listen uh, sit down with people uh, I know in the past we've sat down with uh, authors of books we've sat down with you know just general citizens that that want to put their input to specific cases but over the past even the past five years uh, just working homicide cases everything's completely changes it's, it's almost on a 180 um, so from like 2008 to two, 2015 most most cases were very cell phone heavy on uh, meeting Cell phones typically would solve a lot of investigations, tracking information, historical location information, things like that. Uh, they still do, but now with all these different applications, such as like WhatsApp and TextNow and and these type of these free applications and paid applications, it's getting more and more difficult to to track messaging. Okay. Work on uh, work with companies like Google, uh, Apple, iCloud, any type of iCloud uh, companies, like not just Apple, but any, anybody that stores data. We write core orders and we obtain that data so we can go back and we can see what websites people went to, their historical location information. So, for instance, you know, last September, where were they um, on this date and time? We can kind of see if the phone was on where that person uh, or whoever was using that phone, where that phone was. That things you know over the past five years are, are changing and i would expect that to change even more i think what hurts the list case a little bit is that a lot of these applications and social media things like that didn't exist in 2010 when like they do now or they did but they weren't as involved in, in pretty much everyone's life i know facebook was around but you know not nearly as many people had facebook as they do today let alone five years ago so everything's pretty much changed so i think if the list keys happen today I feel confident that it would be a lot easier to solve than it was back in 2010, let alone bodies were found in 2010, 2011. These crimes happened, some of them in the 90s, so you're going back even farther, which makes it even more difficult. So things definitely evolved, at least in my field.
0: With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash LISK, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash LISK to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash LISK.
1: So let's talk about cold cases. What is kind of the life cycle of a cold case? When does it turn cold? And what is law enforcement looking for in terms of when to resurrect cold cases?
2: So uh, we typically, anywhere between three and five years, but if there is a suspect on a case, we won't consider it cold. A lot of times, a lot of the cold cases have great suspects that police like, but A, police are not going to go to the press and release the the name of the suspect. And B, they're not going to, They potentially may have enough to indict a case, in grand jury, but they don't feel confident that they're going to win the case in the courtroom. So an arrest is never made. So it it just depends for us, I would say between three and five years. But there's, you know, there's cases that there's people that we like for the crime. We're right there, but we just need a little bit more. I think that's a lot of the cold cases out there today. I know, at least by me. When things get slow, sometimes detectives will just pick up a cold case, and it's great just to have a fresh set of eyes on a case. Uh, sometimes there's you know people you could identify that were never interviewed. There's uh, items that could be tested or retested. DNA testing uh, has definitely changed over the past twenty years. So now we have greater capabilities than we had back in the you know the eighties and nineties, the two thousands. We have a lot more low copy of DNA, which you know, a lot of people call touch DNA, which uh, which we can test now and then even if we get bad samples there's actually ways of enhancing those samples using like uh, an item called like a star mixture or something like that where it'll enhance potentially separate the DNA profile and then we'll get a better opportunity to take that profile put it into CODIS potentially match to a suspect so everything's pretty much uh, like I mentioned before everything's pretty much changed but every department works cold cases differently Uh, I think it's a great thing just to have fresh eyes on the case. Uh, a lot of times people already have made conclusions on cold cases or they've zoned in on one suspect and they kind of get tunnel vision. And uh, once you have tunnel vision, it's kind of hard to, to come out of. And, uh, you know, sometimes the person that you like for the crime isn't necessarily the person that did the crime.
1: Yeah. And I was going to ask, does public interest in cold cases help kind of light a fire under law enforcement to sort of start looking into them again?
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, it not only fuels investigation, it, it also depends on who's running the department, but uh, not only will fuel the investigation, it might generate new tips and leads. There's things you can do now that you know we couldn't do five, 10 years ago, for instance, uh, like Google searches. Sometimes when people commit crimes, they, they go back and they constantly you know, or consistently look up articles on the crime. So maybe, you know, if you have a serial killer and say that individuals kill 10 people and you know that most of these crimes are related, you could actually write a court cool order to Google and start looking for uh, keyword searches that somebody may have done. So, for instance, if there was a, a murder in New York City, there was one in Atlanta, there was one in Nashville, there was one in L.A., and there was one in I'm making up a town, but Jackson, Arizona, Jackson, Arizona might be a small little town. If somebody's Google searching all those little towns and looking up the keyword murder along with those towns, Google could provide the user uh, profile for that person. And it might be an investigative lead. It might be, you know, it might be a sleuth, but it also might be somebody that, you know, was involved in those crimes. And want to see if any new articles or new information comes out about the crimes. Uh, maybe you know, maybe they walk around looking with their head over their shoulder because you know deep the down inside they know they're responsible and know that any day they can get ripped ripped out of bed at 6 a.m. by a SWAT team. So, yeah, I think uh, you know, back to your question, Shannon. I think definitely fuels investigations, especially little. Like not high profile cold cases are are almost better to put out there because people don't know about them as much. There's less press. So now when you're really putting it out to the press, you're really generating new information. And then sometimes that information leads to podcasts, TV shows, things like that, Reddit message boards. So it's definitely a good thing.
1: So uh, just to sort of put a button on all of this, if you could give advice to web sleuths, online researchers out there who would like to submit tips to local law enforcement or whomever, what is the best way to do it?
2: Sure. Um, I would not submit an email or online tip. I think a lot of those get kind of brushed away or missed. Get on the phone and get in contact with somebody. You could always start with the detective bureau in a town where the crime happened. If it is a federal case, you can always contact the FBI, the local FBI branch. You can simply Google search the town and FBI and the nearest branch will come up. But I wouldn't just email or submit a tip online. I would physically pick up a phone, contact somebody. And then there's other things you could do, too. for instance, like with the list case, a you know, web went out there and built his own website, uh, which came out great, and that generates information, generates interest, and I'm sure he receives tips as well. So you could even take it to that level if you wanted to. Like I mentioned, I, I wouldn't submit tips online. I would definitely call, contact, and then when you contact, uh, get the name of the person you spoke to, and then maybe a few months line, place another call, and, and see if there was any results, or see if they can give you any information on, you know, the information that you provided to them. Uh, otherwise, As a web sleuth, you kind of, I would assume, you kind of want to know that the information was vetted out.
1: That's great. Great advice. And I I think the list community... We'll find that invaluable because especially with online researchers and web sleuths, we have nobody to bounce ideas off of. We don't really know if we're onto something. And to have a resource like you is invaluable to give perspective and tell us uh, what's up and what's down. So I appreciate that and um, look forward to speaking to you again. sounds good. This has been a Mopac Audio production. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzardin and Jonathan Beal. This episode was written and hosted by me, Shannon McGarvey. Thank you for listening.